to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements, starting from 1839, working up to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Just the usual announcements. If you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review uh, this podcast on all platforms. Share with your friends. If you'd like to uh, support monetarily, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. I've kind of been uploading the show notes there. Uh, if you send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com, you can tell me what you think, uh, things, you, things you'd like to hear about, other things. I've heard from two people so far. Uh, I, I wonder how you're enjoying it. Um, so yeah, please do drop me an email, uh, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Okay, to kick off this episode... Last week, we introduced the difference between Zheng Guofan's army and the regular Qing dynasty army. The uh, Zheng Guofan's army was loyal to him personally rather than to the emperor. He recruited through personal acquaintances, not through just general recruitment. You know, any body can put itself in the army, where, you know, whereas Zheng Guofan you had to know the person, recruit them personally, so they, they'd be loyal, that they'd be reliable. They were supplied through funds raised by Zheng Guofan rather than through the central government, and Zheng Guofan had to do his own propaganda to ensure that the people identified success of the emperor with the, the continuation of their own civilization. And part of the Taiping rebels' power was that their was that they had an answer to the perceived defects of the foreign Qing dynasty, that is, throw the bums out. The thing with Zheng Guofan's army is it was personally loyal to him, but he was doing everything all in the name of the emperor, and he meant it quite sincerely. So uh, we'll be moving on with uh, so, you know, there, there's a question why he didn't go to try to overthrow the Qing dynasty with his own army. Well, he, that's not what he felt his mission was. That's not what he was trying to do. So today we're following, again, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Today we'll look uh, at the last bit of army logistics and organization, and then look at the first few years of its operations. Uh, this, let's look at the support and the ideological core of the army. Part of the thing is that the Beijing government didn't matter very much to local peasants. Dynasties changed from time to time. Farmers had peace and prosperity or bandits and famine now. So whatever the local thing was, that's kind of what mattered most. Yeah, the emperor did matter, but... Uh, the, you know, the, when the emperor's troops turned into something to the effect of bandits with nicer uniforms, it just, nobody really liked that. 
Sun Guofan did his own fundraising and told his, his troops that the money and the supplies came from the emperor. This was, on the one hand, tactful. Whatever his critics were saying, Sun Guofan was doing his darndest to be loyal to the emperor. But on the other hand, if rulers can't trust their subordinates, they cap their own power growth. So, Sun Guofan, he receives this special mission from the emperor to take a an unprecedented amount of control, well, unprecedented in his recent history for him, uh, to organize local military affairs and to defeat the Taiping rebels. Uh, one of the things about... So let, let, let's, let's look at some different kinds of societies and how they can organize their their military forces. Many authoritarian countries can sustain long campaigns because they have the power of coercion, but they can only go so far because the rulers fear powerful subordinates with their own power bases. So that's how China was running at the time that the, the Manchus kept the Manchurian and Mongolian forces. They were the, the ones on top, but the, the forces manned by... Han Chinese recruits, they kind of kept those in, you know, kind of disorganized, and they were kind of police forces, but it's not like they were trying to exercise a huge army to take over the rest of the world. They, the, the Qing wanted to stay in power, and so they needed to, you know, so even where they could throw bodies and bodies and bodies into a military campaign, they're just, they didn't have what it took to get the professionalism out of their military that would have helped them put down the Taiping Rebellion. Now, many democratic-ish societies wield militaries that can defeat powerful enemies, and, you know, and the fear of popular reaction to military losses forces tactical innovations, um, you know, but good luck trying to rule an empire with those forces, you know, unless they can get something for themselves from the military campaign. Um, at any rate, uh, today, you know, there's not direct imperial rule like there had been before, because directly conquering and annexing foreign territory just doesn't go over the same way that it does before. Like, part of what... Uh, Russia is doing with Ukraine, well, Russia kind of sees Ukraine as really being part of Russia, so it's a it's a bit of a different thing. Whereas, like before, the you know British rule of India was kind of done off the edge of the map, so it wasn't really something that answered to the people at home, and so they kind of you know it was. It, they they salami sliced their way into controlling all of India. So for Tunguafan, uh, he needed a way to motive motivate his soldiers. One of the ways was to make sure to pay his army well. That one the, the, the he was from Hunan. Most of his uh, his recruits were from Hunan, so it was known as the Hunan Army. They were kind of fighting for home, but he also made sure to pay them well because it's, there's, there's no grand overall principle that they're fighting for that they believe in enough 
to go out of their own home province and you know put their lives on the line and maybe die away from home and you know like in chinese tradition it's really really better to be buried in your hometown rather than go far away the to you know Zeng Guofan really needed to make sure to provide for them and to pay them well and so if you compare this to today in many democratic societies the army markets itself as a way to get a training you know for different careers or to build personal purpose it's a way to pay for college it's a way to see the world there's a lot that the army is about in the marketing like there's other reasons why people join it other than just to you know serve their country so that's that's how modern militaries get their recruits Zeng Guofan needed to have something in it other than to defeat the Taiping. The, de- defeating the Taiping was his problem. Uh, you know, presenting something that w- that potential recruits would see as their problem. That yeah, okay, I'd like a piece of that. Uh, he really needed to shore up that base of support. And uh, the book we're following for this episode, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, okay, uh, it talks about weapons. So we'll divert somewhat to this. Uh, but if you want more detail on that point, read the book. We're following it for, you know, the the basic story, for a lot of the basic characterizations, and it gives us some backup for our thesis as we go along. So the weapons uh, were the standard for either side, uh, rebels or, you know, for fighting for the emperor, swords, spears, farming implements like pitchforks, hatchets, whatever works. Um, matchlock muskets, you know, the you know you light a fuse that then connects with a pan of gunpowder. Um, so you you just have this slow burning fuse, and then you pull the trigger, and it snaps down and touches off the gunpowder, fires the bullet. Um, something called a gingal. It was a small cannon operated by three or four men on a tripod, or you know, two men could kind of hold it, and it would work. And it was, and it would shoot a one-pound ball about a mile, kind of like a mortar uh, equivalent. Um, there were some larger cannon; they were fairly rare. Chinese weapons here are two to three generations behind similar European weapons. The matchlock. I remember seeing the Pocahontas movie. John, John Smith has his matchlock, and he's pointing it at Pocahontas when when she first appears. Um, I remember asking my dad why why there there was that burning rope on the gun. I was much more used to the flint locks, like in pirate movies or something. The trick is getting the next step in technology to perform consistently. So, I guess whatever the Chinese had worked at the time, or it's what they still had from whenever they last bought the guns or made the guns, but uh, Chinese weapons technology was way behind the European standards. Uh, Weapons firing bullets we recognize today were in development, but they would be perfected in the 1860s. But a weapon is a weapon, and you have what you have. And, you know, what your nation is going to do with laser guns shooting a thousand times a minute might have been decided in a fight, you know, many years before with matchlock guns shooting once a minute. So, like, whatever the weapons are during a revolution, it's who won the fight, either political, military, 
whatever else, who won the fight with whatever weapons were available, that's where the rule changes are going to be decided. One thing I said in another podcast is, you know, Chinese wars, they were enough for their own purposes. So however inefficient the tactics may have been, or however high the body count may have been, real wars were decided, real civilizational questions were decided. It wasn't just some sort of barbaric, you know, people killing each other because they had nothing else to do. Oh no, there were real political questions being settled. Um, incidentally, the, the Taiping were a lot more limited in weaponry. Like, they'd boil the saltpeter out of bricks to make gunpowder. Like, they'd you'd, like, take a wall apart and boil the bricks. Like, they didn't have bricks of saltpeter. They needed to get it from wherever it would naturally accumulate. Um, the Taiping captured the Hunan city of Yuezhou in 1852, and they found a pile of 200-year-old guns. And they were happy to have them, like, like very rusty, antiquated, like really antiquated. And their weapons, great for free, thanks. Um, both sides would try to get more modern arms. You know, weapons always involve evolve in war. The basic unit of organization was a battalion of 505 men, self-supporting and self-disciplining. There were four companies, four aft, left, right, 108 men each, Eight squads of ten men plus a commanding officer and a cook for each unit, each uh, squad. Two gingal squads, uh, you know, kind of like a, an equivalent of a mortar squad. Uh, they they had two more men to help carry the gingal. You know, two men would carry matchlock muskets, the rest carried hand weapons. There was a personal bodyguard of 72 plus the commander, and they also worked as a sort of military police to keep other troops from looting and pillaging. There were six squads, two squads with, uh, hauling cannon, three squads with swords and spears, one squad with muskets. And there were an additional 180 support personnel for each battalion carrying supplies. So you can see Zeng Guofan has created a command structure to keep his troops organized and to keep them from getting out of hand, looting. Before we get to the riverine force that Zhang Guofan developed, you know, over and over you can see how much of this is commanders having to figure out what to do and how to organize things. The critical thing in military conflict is how much margin you have and what you can do with it you know, and what you succeed in doing with it. And so Zhang Guofan uh, has, I mean, like his his mission is, of course, of the utmost importance. But the a lot of where he was running into difficulty is it's not like all of the people he'd be asking to help support him really shared the same sense of urgency that he had. It was his mission personally from the emperor to organize the military forces in Hunan to fight the Taiping. Um, the, you know, so he, 
you know, he, he was he was able to get enough margin because the people around him weren't against him enough to just totally shut him down. I mean, because he did have a thing from the emperor, and so he did use that. But we're we're going to see just how bad it was in the very beginning. Uh, now, just a side note here: the difficulty in talking about numbers is I'm not sure what the numbers mean. Like, you know, somebody had a thousand, somebody had ten thousand, a hundred thousand. It's China. There's a lot of people. I, I'm not sure you know what, you know, if I, if I tell you an army of 10,000, 50,000, I'm not sure you know what it means. And I sure as heck don't quite know what it means. Like, you know, and if you read about World War One, World War Two, armies of a million men clashing, well, you know, but then today, you know, like say the, the invasion of Ukraine, it's like a hundred thousand men over an enormous territory like so a tenth of what they might have had before but they move a lot faster and so here's here's really what matters like proportion like so if i talk about a force one tenth the size of another wins because of some critical innovation or when i talk about numbers it's about getting a sense of organization innovation development like so, when I went over all the details about the organization of Zheng Guofan's forces, you can see he means business. He's trying to structure everything, trying to do everything professionally, um, that you have to start somewhere. Uh, with military science, it proceeds over a mountain of bodies. It's like, you know, you do it this way because fewer people die. Oh, really? How do you know that? Because a lot of people died because we did it the other way before. Ah, okay. Like, so if you dig a trench, you need to make sure that there are, you know, curves and corners in it so that if a bomb goes off in the, you know, if an artillery shell lands right in the trench, it can only damage so much of it. Otherwise, you know, because it's, it's going to be exploding into the dirt rather than just explode and then go all the way down the trench and kill a lot of men. Like, so they, you know, how did they find that out? Because artillery landed and killed a lot of guys. So, okay, we need to put some grooves and curves in this. So, so about that riverine force. Uh, Tsunguafan developed one with large and small ships and with logistics ships. He had to bring in boat makers from outside Hunan to build these because Hunan people didn't have the right experience and expertise. Uh, so, February 1854, he has 13 battalions of land troops. Okay, it's 505 each. Okay, 505, okay, times 10 is 5,050, but then another here. So he's got, getting close to like 5,500, 6,000 soldiers. He has 200 warboats of various sizes, 100 river junks to carry supplies, one large flagship. So he, he's, he's got a force he can deploy. Now, as it turns out, Zheng Guofan is a terrible tactical commander. He has some initial success pushing north, but then the Taiping counterattacked and drove Zheng Guofan's army back toward Changsha, the capital of Hunan. And they kept going, and they took the city of Xiangtan, uh, and they took one of Zheng Guofan's shipyards. So in the capital of Hunan is threatened by additional Taiping victories. So this really makes Zheng Guofan look bad, and he he wrote back to the emperor. He accepted responsibility, responsibility, he acknowledged his inexperience, and he asked to be punished. 
you know, so after one disaster, another disastrous attempt to lead a river force to capture uh, Xiang Tan back, you know, uh, it, it was a rout, like, like totally defeated. Lots of guys died, boats captured. Uh, Zhang Guofan tried to drown himself, but he was saved by a secretary who pulled him out of the water. So he's like the the one thing that Zhang Guofan has going for him is that he believes in China. He believes in the Confucian teachings that he's been living by all his life. He believes in being loyal to the emperor, but that's about as far as his skill goes. He's navigating the political questions because he has to. I'm sure he'd love to be sitting back in Beijing in the Hanlian Academy trying to persuade others of what to believe, but no, he's given the job of working out a practical solution to a practical problem, and a bunch of rebels trying to kill you, that's very practical, has a lot of practical implications. Let's compare this to the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. The Army of the Potomac, uh, the Eastern Forces for the Union, you know, had they had one successful organizing general, McClellan, who turned it into a professional force, but was a an ineffective commander. They went through general after general until Lincoln found the one who could keep the army in the fight and keep pushing a, until the Army of Northern Virginia was defeated. That's General Lee's army. Lincoln wasn't an emperor for life. He had to finagle the politics to be able to stay in office. And he needed military victories uh, because that meant there would be more support for him in the electorate. So military victories meant he could you know, stay in place to execute his plan to win the war and keep the country together. Well, for Zhang Guofan, he the level at which he's operating, he had to combine the political and the military tasks in himself. He was going to be the one to have to keep it developing. He was one of the ones ordered by the emperor to take to to take provincial forces in hand and push forward and defeat the enemy. If he didn't do it, no one was going to do it. Zhang Guofan uh, had critics in the provinces, like local elites he had to fundraise from, local regular army commanders who might have been jealous of what he was doing. He was kind of going around their regular command infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, local members of the central bureaucracy who maybe thought that this was a danger to the emperor or something, it critics in the capital, they maybe it were they jealous of Deng Guofan or were they jealous for the emperor's supremacy? I don't really know, but there were a lot of whispers in the emperor's ears about the danger of such an independent force existing. Let's pull in a bit from science fiction from the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. You know, if you have a strong emperor and a weak general, the weak general's not going to conquer outward, he's not going to risk his neck. If you have a weak emperor and a strong general, the general will come back and replace the emperor, or the emperor will suspect the general and have him sidelined or executed. 
a weak emperor, weak general, okay, nothing's going to happen. Strong emperor, strong general, there's political confidence at home, and willingness to support a talented general going out, conquering abroad. Well, for like a, like a lot of the political question is going to be decided by you know, whether the emperor can continue to put trust in Zanguofan and whether Zanguofan will stay at his post and keep trying and push on to try to defeat the Taiping. Until he got a major victory, Zanguofan had to push against a lot of local opposition. You know, but then his forces retook the city of Xiangtan and relieved pressure on Changsha. So then, you know, so then he he came back. He was able eventually to retake it, and he pushed northward and retook the city of Wuchang, modern Wuhan in Hubei. Thousands of boats captured, thousands upon thousands of rebels killed. So he finally did get a victory that, you know, got everybody to kind of support him. And Zhang Guofan had to rely on other commanders and not try to lead himself because he was so awful as a tactician. And like the composition of his army, the commanders were recruited through personal relationships. This included three of his four brothers. And he also brought over commanders from the regular Qing army, including Manchus, particularly cavalry officers, because like in in Hunan. It's it's mountainous, it's hilly, it's not really a great place for cavalry. So you're not going to get good horsemen from Hunan. Uh, Non-Hunan officers were paid well because they had no local loyalty. And the, the main frontline troops were always overwhelmingly Hunanese. As the story develops, we're going to have to look at how Zhang Guofan kept his army motivated when they left Hunan. Now, another part of Zhang Guofan's task was propagandizing and disciplining his troops. So his, his motto was, love the people. This was a counterinsurgency army. Part of counterinsurgency is getting the people to believe in the government. And he needed the local people to at least be not against his army. Some supplies could come in from Hunan, but other supplies would need to come from locals who would feel comfortable selling to the Hunan army. Like if you feel like the enemy, if if you feel like this army coming in from the outside is going to steal your stuff, well, screw them. I'm you know I'm hiding my stuff and I'm not selling them anything. Um, laborers would have to be hired from the local population, and if they or others felt that the laborers were helping an outside oppressor, that's not good. Like if you remember like the news stories from when America had you know had large armies in Iraq, well the the question would be if you are working for the American backed government, are you helping a foreign occupier or are you help build are you helping build your own country? So it's really, really important for a counterinsurgency army to not turn the feelings of the people against the government that this counterinsurgency army is trying to to sustain. And part of what Tsung Guofan did was he composed songs for troops to sing to themselves, 
you know, some of it was about what they should and shouldn't do on campaign, like so, pay for things you take, don't take from gardens and fields, don't steal doors for firewood, all that kind of thing. You know, because if you're if you're on campaign, you just get wood wherever you find it, and you don't care if you know it's a baby's cradle. You just set the you know you just take the baby out, lay him on the ground, and then haha, I have a nice cradle for you know roasting my hot dogs tonight. Um, the you know armies would like in the American Civil War, they would tear fences apart and burn those. So like so armies on the move are not good news if you're just at, you know, if if you're just some local in the way. Um, also, these uh, these songs were about, like, not forcing men to work for you. You know, like, so pay them so that the family is not in terror because you coerced, you, you know, you grabbed somebody off the street to carry your stuff. So don't, don't do that so that they don't hate us. Um, emphasizing the unity of the people and the army, according to Autumn in the, in the Heavenly Kingdom, an idea. Uh, this this idea was deliberately echoed by communist forces in the Chinese Civil War and after, that the army and the people are together, um, and you see that in Chinese media today that the people and the party are together. If it's true or not, well, it's what they're going to be singing about. If a so it's it's interesting how uh, they they have to go back into history and find examples of how this has all happened before. Like so, if a dramatically different regime took over America, they'd have to retell the story of George Washington in some weird other way. You know, because George Washington is somebody who all Americans recognize, and so they'd have to tell some new political ideology story with a very different telling of the life of George Washington. So Chinese revolutions will be borrowing from Chinese history. So whatever they believe in, they're going to be borrowing from whatever corner of Chinese history will help them support their their thing at that time. So that'll be something that we'll be looking into as we get into the Chinese Civil War, but that's going to be a long time from now. From now. Once the Hunan army took Wuchang in October 1854, they followed the same path the Taiping had taken to Nanjing. The main concentration of the, the main contribution of the Hunan army uh, is going to be to close the Yangtze River to the rebels and to help complete the siege of Nanjing by regular Qing forces. The story is going to involve more years of intense combat lots of bloodshed, including at least one year Zhang Guofan is going to be out of command because he just can't take it anymore and he's going to resign. He had another disastrous campaign downriver in February 1855. Uh, his forces were badly deployed, boats stuck somewhere and they weren't able to use them. So many men died that the army almost mutinied and Tsung Guofan tried to commit suicide again by riding a horse into the thick of battle, but his officers pulled him out. And he was stranded for 18 months in Jiangxi province with 10,000 men. No money to pay them. Local elites were unsupportive. They mocked him publicly. Taiping forces ran right back down the Yangtze and recaptured Wuchang. So Tsung Guofan was having an absolutely terrible, horrible, no good, very bad time. 
he's only going to make progress when the Taiping are focused elsewhere. You know, just his luck, um, they're going to have that in just a moment here. He bears all the responsibility himself. If he doesn't do what he's charged to do, it's not going to get done. It's not like there's some popular movement to crush the Taiping rebels. It's like, okay, so which side is going to win? Okay, just just go ahead and win and let me get back to what I'm doing. He's the one who has to make it happen. If he doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. It's not like he's the emperor assigning this to someone else. He's the one in charge of this specific strategy or this specific policy. In 1856, a coup attempt and the bloody repression of it distracted the Taiping enough to give Zheng Guofan some relief from enemy assaults. But at the end of 1857, his father dies, and he's discouraged by opposition from local elites and from you know, other officials, and also discouraged by how things really went, Zheng Guofan resigned. The emperor accepted his resignation, but retained the option to call him back. And Zheng Guofan's absence is going to last for about a year. But the army is left in the hands of his senior officers, so it's not like it's turned over to just some functionary. No, people Zheng Guofan personally recruited are going to be at the head of the army for this year while he's out, ostensibly mourning the death of his father, but while he's just not being able to take it anymore, uh, some of his closest allies are going to still be in charge of the force that he put together. Let's zoom out on the big picture here before we close up. Um, nothing in revolution is inevitable. It requires persistence and support. So we see Zheng Guofan struggling to achieve his mission. He has an ideology, so he's following the Confucian notions of how China ought to be. He has the army he's raised, he has a very, very strong sense of duty. But in the end, he wasn't chosen because he knew how to do the job. He was chosen because he would figure out how to do it. He would figure out how to get the right people to help him. So maybe in future revolutions, we're going to see forces that come together not because they're really, really good at military stuff, but because the leadership so believes in what they're doing that they're willing to keep doing it no matter what. Like, this is pure politics. That it is about who's going to be in charge, how they get to be in charge, and how it is that they continue to stay in charge. Um, the the political rules change as part of a revolution, and military conflict is as raw as it gets for settling whose version is going to be the official one. So, if you'd like to support the podcast, again, please uh, rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast uh, to donate. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com, or please send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. If you send me an email, I feel like I'm, you know, doing this for friends who are counting on it to keep coming out. And, uh, well, friends, I have been your host, Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>